series through the book of Daniel. Uh, we're calling this Courageous Living in Troubled Times. You ever feel like you live in troubled times? Amen. Yeah. Uh, so today, this is the fifth week that we've been in Daniel. We're in chapter four. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter four. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We're calling the message today, The Price of a Proud Heart. The Price of a Proud Heart. Well, it was during a 1923 training exercise, a naval destroyer called the USS Delphi led a flotilla of seven vessels down the California coast. Now, the, the USS Delphi was captained by Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter, an experienced navigator and instructor at the Naval Academy. Without warning, about halfway through their training mission, a thick blanket of fog descended on the ships. And, and in the midst of the fog, uh, Commander Hunter said that it was like pea soup. He couldn't get an accurate evaluation of his location. Now, contrary to Commander Hunter's calculations, the lead ship that he was on was headed right into a place called the Devil's Jaw, just two miles off the coast of California. But that did not stop the commander from plowing ahead. And that's not surprising, for Commander Hunter was known for his self-confident decisiveness. And even others uh, mentioned that he had uh, what they called a magic infallibility to guide his ships. So traveling at 20 knots, suddenly the USS Delphi smashed broadside into Rocky Point, Point Ar 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 Arguello on the shoreline there. And the force of that massive collision of welded steel and the jagged rocks split the hull in two. And then one by one, the other destroyers followed the Delphi's lead and smashed into those same rocks. 22 sailors died that day. The accident resulted in the loss of all seven ships, and it stands even to today as one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in history. All because one guy was confident that he knew where he was going. Pride. Pride is the first sin. It's the most serious sin. Pride is our greatest problem. Not the devil, not low self-esteem, not our upbringing, not injustices suffered, pride. We all struggle with it in one form or another. In fact, the, the Bible goes so far as to warn us that God hates the sin of pride and will discipline the proud. How far is it that God will go to get his message across to us? Well, the answer is not hard to find. The answer is that he will do whatever it takes to make sure that we get his message. But what if we don't want to hear what God has to say? Well, the answer is the same, but maybe even raised to a higher power. If we choose not to listen to God, then he may simply turn up the volume until he has our undivided attention. Well, today we're going to consider the story of a very prideful king 
who experienced exactly this formula. Throughout this chapter, uh, the, the story is told of strange events that happened 25 centuries ago. But the moral is both timeless and as relevant as today's headlines. Even though the world has changed greatly since Daniel's day, the human heart really hasn't changed much at all. The world is still filled with men and women who think they don't need God or they know better than God and God still knows how to humble people who walk in pride. From today's text, we learn that God humbled this pagan king. But there is a very important truth here for all of us as well. So before we move into the text, though, I, I want us to note two things about this chapter, Daniel chapter 4. And the first thing is this. Unlike all the other chapters in Daniel, this one is written by the king himself. In fact, the first few verses and the last few verses are written in the first person singular. Reading this chapter is almost like, uh, like reading King Nebuchadnezzar's private diary. Uh, and, and then the second, Daniel 4 describes in great detail the king's most humiliating experience. Imagine, if you would, that your personal journey or diary were, were posted on the internet. How would you feel about that? So that your innermost thoughts and the hidden secrets of your life were just revealed for everybody to read. That's what chapter four really is. And so these two facts tell us that this chapter contains a, an extraordinary story. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar may happen to you or to me at some point in our life. And for some of us, it might happen more than once. Therefore, we should pay careful attention to this ancient story because through it, God will speak some very contemporary truth to all of us. So let's begin, and there's an outline in your program if you'd like to follow along. Let's begin with a dream described, a dream described. Our story begins at a time when King Nebuchadnezzar is on, we could say he's on the crest of a wave. He's, he's contented and he's prosperous and he's successful. He's at the height of his glory. He is the king over the greatest empire the world has ever known. If there had been a, a Fortune 500 back then, uh, his name would have been at the very top in the number one position. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and mighty armies obeyed his word. Babylon, what a fabulous city it was. The famous hanging gardens were one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, the, the city itself was protected by 15 miles of double walls, 85 feet tall, 27 feet thick. The walls were so wide that chariots could race around the circumference of the city. Visitors to the city came through the massive Ishtar Gate and traveled down the main boulevard toward the king's palace. The Ishtar Gate sat at the end of what was called the Processional Way, a beautiful street paved with bricks that stretched over a half a mile long leading to the palace. This is a, a replica of the Ishtar Gate. It was built in the 1950s when Iraq first started developing the remains of Babylon as a tourist site gives you just a tiny glimpse into the magnificent glory uh, of what Babylon was. And so truly, 
This king had every reason to feel secure, safe, satisfied. Who in all the earth could dare to challenge him? But one night, he had a, a strange and troubling dream. Now, we know that, of course, this wasn't the first time that God spoke to this particular king in a dream. You might remember back in chapter 2 when we looked at that, that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream of that huge statue made of four different types of metals. And the interpretation of that dream revealed God's plan for the ages. The dream, though, this one in chapter 4 is quite different. It's very personal. I want you to listen to the king's words here as I read them from verses 10 through 16. These are the words of King Nebuchadnezzar. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heavens. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass in the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. What a strange vision for King Nebuchadnezzar to have. Now the dream has two distinct parts. First, the king sees this vast tree with leaves stretching so far as the eye could see and the birds are, are resting there, the animals are under its shade. And then secondly, the tree is cut down, stripped, the stump bound with iron to keep it from growing. And then somehow, somehow, the stump becomes a person. A person who lived among the animals for seven years. And evidently this person lost their mind completely. Of course, the king immediately realized the dream contains an important message that he needed to know. But like his last dream, no one in his kingdom could explain it to him. All of his wise men utterly failed. They had no clue what it meant. Then... Who does the king call upon but Daniel? Do you ever wonder why he didn't call Daniel just to start with? He's the guy that knew it last time. Wouldn't he be the go-to guy this time? But no, he's the last guy. But he knows that Daniel possesses something that the king labels the spirit of the holy gods. That's kind of a pagan way of, of referring to Daniel's got God's holy spirit in him. And so now we move from this dream that's described to a dream that is explained. A dream explained. So when Daniel heard the king's dream, he knows exactly what it means. And for a long time, he stands silent, not wanting to tell the king the awful truth. 
But after summarizing the first part of the dream, Daniel really gets down to brass tacks, if you will. He gets to the bottom line and he says, King, you're the tree. You are the tree. And he goes on to say that, that God has ordained that the king will become like a beast of the field. Listen to these words. That you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox and you'll be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The key word right there is until. Until. This divine judgment is disciplinary. It's not punitive, it's discipline. For seven years, seven times in Hebrew, the king will live like a wild beast, losing his mind. He'll live with the beasts of the field until, until he acknowledges that God alone is sovereign. Until he recognizes as Joel talked about in the communion message, the glory of God. Nebuchadnezzar needs to be introduced to the glory of God. Well, next, following Daniel's explanation, we see a dream fulfilled. A dream fulfilled. The rest of the story unfolds quite quickly. Verse 28 tells us that all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. And so for, for 12 months, though, the king had time to change his ways. Evidently, though, nothing that Daniel said sank into his soul. He didn't really make any changes. Maybe he didn't believe Daniel. Maybe he thought he had plenty of time to take care of things. Maybe he just made excuses for his bad behavior. Who knows? But then, in verse 29, then came the fateful moment that changed his entire life. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is, this, uh, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Do you see the pronouns there? I, me, my those boastful words, I have built this, my mighty power, the glory, there's that word, the glory of what? My majesty. Now let's just take a beat here, pause for just a moment to make this a little bit practical. Simple application. Friends, don't ever talk like this. Don't ever talk like this. As, as, as the kids might say, that's just crazy talk. They're crazy talk, all right? Matter of fact, here's something I want us to say together. It's not all about me. Let's say that. It's not all about me. Try it again. It's not all about me. We live in a culture, in a world that is designed to make you feel and believe and think that it's all about you. It's all about you. But it's not all about you and it's not all about me. And when we think that way, when the moment that we start taking credit for all that's going on in our lives, we're just daring God to come and kind of smack us around. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would soon learn the error of his ways. While the words were still on his lips, he hears a voice from heaven. And here's another point. When we 
decide to start talking arrogantly about who we are, what we've done. And by the way, if you suddenly hear a voice from heaven, you better brace yourself because nothing good is about to happen. You see, God doesn't like it when his creation takes credit for what he has done. He does not desire to share his glory with anyone. And he won't sit idly by while we attempt to push him out of the picture. And so the voice announces the judgment. And then just as swiftly, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. Immediately, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That's all that's said about this seven-year period of, I don't know what we label it, insanity. One moment he is surveying his royal kingdom and the next he is ripping off his clothes and making strange noises and galloping on all fours. Soon he's running through the main streets of Babylon, totally naked and stark raving mad. Those who have studied this text say that the king had a a complete mental breakdown. I suppose that's true, but it, it doesn't even do full justice to the text. He lost all connection with reality. Some commentators say he was afflicted with a condition, an actual condition called boanthropy, where a person thinks that they are a cow or a bull. It was hard to imagine a more severe punishment from God. There's no way to keep the king's malady totally hidden from the public, not for seven years. Sooner or later, probably sooner, the word's going to leak out. And though he's still king, he can't reign, he can't speak, he can't appear in public. Indeed, he couldn't think or communicate as a human being. He, He acted like a beast of the field. And so when the king was put out to pasture, if you will, it was a fate really worse than death. And so why would God do such a thing? The answer is really not that hard to find. You see, pride is a form of spiritual insanity. It is claiming credit for ourselves, that which belongs to God alone. And so what happened to Nebuchadnezzar was a kind of spiritual parable for all of us. When a man or a woman tries to become like God, they instead become like animals. But that's not the end of the story. Seven years later, the king's life takes another dramatic turn. In verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Do you see that? Just as suddenly as he lost his mind, he regained it in an instant. And it happened this way. He looked up. I lifted my eyes to heaven. He woke up. Sanity was restored. And he spoke up. He praised and glorified the Most High. 
And we know that he was truly changed because of what he said when he came to his senses. I want you to read this passage with me. Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35. Let's read this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The word of God. Those are Nebuchadnezzar's words about Jehovah God. This once pagan king now openly declares the praises of Jehovah God. He has truly gotten the message. God can do anything he wants to do and no one can stand against him. Earthly kings rule by his permission. And they stay on the throne only so long as it pleases God to give them or allow them power and authority. And so Nebuchadnezzar had learned this truth the hard way. Now he proclaims it for the whole world to hear. The next couple of verses give us the end of the story and really the moral that we can all take to heart. It goes on and it says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Those are for the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to take note of one particular phrase there. All his works are right. Friends, true biblical faith begins right here with this statement. All God's works are right. This is one of the Bible's clearest statements about the wisdom of God's eternal plan. You know, so often today we struggle. We struggle to rec reconcile these words with, you know, things like the heartache that we see around us in our world. Why is there suffering? Or the hardship we have in our own life. Lord, why do I have to endure this? But true faith begins when, he, when we understand all his works are right. You and I might not understand everything, but we hold on to the God who does know. And our faith is in him. Whether we understand it or not, these words are true nonetheless. And so let me give you just a, a little test for whether or not you've grown through the struggles of this life. You can kind of just apply this as a self-test. So here's the question. Can you look back to your past without regret and thank God for what you've learned even though it may have cost you, even though it might have been difficult or hard or painful? Or do you continue to look back in regret, in disappointment? You know, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar felt embarrassed about his seven years of insanity. If he had, 
he wouldn't have written the story down for the whole world to know. Friends, we can know that we have made a spiritual breakthrough when we can tell our own story without feeling a need to either embellish it or to cover up the negative aspects. You see, we all have a story. And God has given us that story. And one of the most effective things we can do is to share it with all of its mess and brokenness and ugliness. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so if we get nothing else out of this story, we must certainly learn this truth. All his works are right. And if we don't humble ourselves, he will. So I want to just kind of finish up here by sharing four principles that I think can help us understand how God may deal with us when we attempt to live without him. What's God going to do when we attempt to live without him? Well, first, God's righteousness may cause him to intervene, especially when we believe we don't need him anymore. Because God is entirely righteous, he will not stand idle forever while his children live in sin. Sooner or later, he will intervene. And how does that intervention come? Well, if we use the, the picture, if you will, the image of the king's dream, we can say that God always starts by maybe shaking our tree. Think of your life as a tree, like Nebuchadnezzar's tree. And maybe God's going to shake your tree when you think you can't live without him. When you think, ah, I've got this, uh, uh, look at how good I'm doing, maybe some shaking is going to come. God's going to reach down from heaven and he's going to be begin to shake things in which we place our confidence. Could that perhaps explain why maybe sometimes we struggle with health issues? Maybe we have marital issues, difficulties, family problems, financial hardships, career frustrations. Could sometimes those things be a sign that God is trying to shake our tree and get our attention? Maybe he's saying, wake up. Something's going on here and it's not good and I need your undivided attention. Last week I shared with you a, a quote from C.S. Lewis and uh, uh, you know, it went something like this. If God whispers to us in our pleasures, then he shouts to us in our pain. I love that quote because it reminds us that God never wastes a hurt. And so when you're hurting, when you're struggling, when there's brokenness or uncertainty or you don't know what's going on, at least consider, is this God saying something to me? Trying to get my attention. Whenever we begin to think that we've got it made, that's when God might start shaking our tree. And it's his way of saying, it's time for you to pay attention. Number two, number two, a principle to help us understand how God might deal with us when we're attempting to live without him. God's judgment may be painful because he's cutting away the sin that pulls us away from him. You see that picture of Nebuchadnezzar? What did they do to the tree? They cut it down and stripped all the branches off. Let's just suppose something like, say, you had a strange pain in your body. And so you go to see the doctor, and the doctor runs some tests, and he says, okay, uh, you've got a, a tumor, but we can do surgery to remove that. 
Well, what if you were to say, eh, I don't want the surgery. It's going to hurt too much if you cut me open. And the doctor comes back and he says, let me tell you something. If we don't do the surgery, you're going to die. You see, friends, sometimes God's disciplinary judgment is painful. It hurts. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, it was utterly devastating and totally humiliating. Sometimes God has to cut the tree down in order to save it. Number three, as we think about God getting our attention, God's discipline lasts until we learn the lessons that he wants to teach us. You know, I, I don't know, you might feel like God's shaking your tree right now. And when that happens, what, what do we want to know? We say, well, how long is this going to last? The only possible answer is, we don't know. We don't know. The trials of life are at times ordained by the Lord for our benefit. He alone knows when they'll begin and when they'll end. But of this much, I am very, very sure. God will never shake your tree a moment longer than necessary. And he will never stop a second before his divine purpose in your life has been accomplished. So, if you find yourself in a hard or an uncertain place, and if you long for days of contentment and peace, be patient. Wait on the Lord. Don't run ahead of the Lord and Especially, don't waste time telling him how to do his business. Well, God, if you would just do this. Instead, meditate on the lesson that he may be trying to teach you. And then finally, number four, God's purpose in humbling us is never, ever to destroy us, but to draw us back into fellowship with him. This is the, the ultimate piece of good news from Daniel chapter 4. If we stand back and we look at the whole narrative, we see Nebuchadnezzar basically in three scenes. Prosperity, judgment, and then restoration. Now, it's tempting to just focus on the judgment, especially given the, the bizarre nature of this seven-year affliction. But to look only on that part misses the entire point. By the end of the chapter, the king has regained his sanity. He's regained his throne. He's even increased his earthly glory. And along the way, most importantly, he's learned the lesson that God is sovereign. He is over the affairs of mankind. And that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so from the king's point of view, this is an entirely satisfactory state of affairs. He ends up better off in every way, materially and spiritually. And in that, friends, we can take great comfort. Though God may, for a season, afflict us with some trials, and though some of those trials may be sometimes from our own foolish doing. His purpose is never to destroy us, but to purge that sin out of our life so that we might be brought into close fellowship with him. That's his desire. In that sense, Nebuchadnezzar's insanity was a, we could call it a severe mercy from God. 
preparing him for better times to come. And so, if our tree is not only shaken, but cut down altogether, the sound of timber that we hear in the distance is not the voice of judgment, but rather the gracious hand of God, perhaps cutting us down to size so that the tree can grow again to the glory of God. And so we come to the end of the personal testimony of somebody who has gained the whole world only to lose it in order to find something even better, peace with God. Nebuchadnezzar knew something wonderful had happened to him and right at the beginning of his story, as he's getting ready to share this, he announces that back in verse two, look at this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. You see, he wants to share his story because it's about what God has done to him as an individual and he wants to share it with the whole world. And friends, that is what the gospel and God's plan for you and his will for you is all about, to point others to finding peace with God. Right here on our wall, we have our, our motto, to know him, to love him, and to share him. So often we get stuck between two and three. We know God. Oh, that's so great. I know the Lord. The Lord loves me and I love him. Amen. But it's not enough to stop there because God has more for you. And that more is to share him, to share your story, to share him with the people he brings into your life. Sharks Bay, Australia should perhaps consider a name, name change to Seagrass Bay since the largest resident is not a, a great white predator but a single seagrass meadow. Just back in 2022, researchers discovered that the whole bay's worth of seagrass spread from just one seed. It was all part of the same plant. And as they discovered that, it instantly became the world's largest known plant as large as 20,000 football fields, 77 square miles, three times the size of Manhattan, and it's estimated to be over 4,500 years old. Dr. Jane Edgelow and her colleagues took samples from several stocks all across Sharks Bay. They wanted to find out how many individual plants made up this vast, rich meadow, which spreads over 110 miles throughout the, the giant inlet. Dr. Edgelow said, the answer blew us away. There was just one, that's it, just one plant. One plant has expanded over 110 miles in Shark Bay, making it the largest known plant on earth. Another of the researchers, researchers said, it appears to be really resilient, experiencing a wide range of temperatures and salinities, plus extreme high light conditions, which together would typically be stressful for most plants, and yet this one flourishes. I thought that was a cool, a cool story. And I, I want to take that story, and friends, I want us to compare it to the kingdom of God and to his church. You see, both had a very small beginning, 
but they've grown into huge, living, resilient organisms. And that's the organism that we belong to. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are a part of his kingdom, a part of his bride, the church. This dream of Nebuchadnezzar, this explanation, his radical conversion, these were all of God's grace in his life. But you know, God seldom works without a human agent. And in this case, it was our friend Daniel. God provided Daniel to be alongside the king in the dark valley of his experience. How important it was that Daniel was on hand to help in Nebuchadnezzar's crisis experience. Someone that he could trust to tell him the truth, as awful as it was. Daniel himself had found God a very present help in his own troubles. His own tree has been shaken. And it was his privilege and his responsibility to be right there for King Nebuchadnezzar. And friends, that is our calling. That is our calling. If we are to wear the name Christian, we are to be his messengers. Daniel felt his inadequacy but yet again, he proved his faithfulness. Nebuchadnezzar was changed. God's name was praised and his kingdom continued to spread because of the faithfulness of one man. May God find us humble and faithful so that we can participate in this supernatural spread of his kingdom his church, across this world. Let's pray together. Father God,